Paul, thanks everyone. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for another beautiful day. And we thank you, Lord, that we can gather together around, around your means of grace and study your word to know more about who you are and what you require of us. And Lord, I ask that as we look into this reigning of your son that is foreseen, that we would take this to heart to know that these things are true, that you spent so much detail in writing these things because you want to assure our hearts of the reality of your future king and kingdom that's to come. And so we pray, Lord, that we would focus on these things in order to live pleasing and holy lives, all for the sake of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to see all of you here. If you recall, last time we had just finished the sixth trumpet judgment, and we were in this interlude. Well, now we are coming to the seventh trumpet. Now, I want everyone to remember that the way John lays out the different judgments is you have three groups of judgments. You have the seal judgments, and you have seven of them. The seventh seal will open up to the seven trumpet judgments. When you get to the seventh trumpet, that is going to open up to the seven bowl judgments. Now, all of these judgments are chronological, meaning the first seal judgment is the beginning of the trials and tribulations. The bowl judgment will be the culmination and the finishing point of God's wrath within the 70th week of Daniel. So the reason I'm pointing that out is we look at the seventh trumpet, realize that is John's way of saying all of the final judgments in the bowls are going to come, and with that, God's wrath is going to be completed. And so today in this message, you're going to see Christ's kingdom is so assuredly going to come it is spoken in these verses as if it's already at hand or it's already reigning. That is Jesus Christ. And that's called proleptic, and we'll talk more about that. But before we move into this week's verses, I want to pull on something from last week that I really didn't get to focus in on. And that is, recall back at the sixth trumpet judgment, you had a third of mankind die because of the demonic army. Remember that? And this is what it said. Revelation 9.20, it says the rest of mankind, that would be the two-thirds who survived, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the work of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone. So even though these people had witnessed such horrific judgment in the form of this demonic army, they would not repent. Now, last week I made the case that you had wrath coming upon the world still, and you even had an earthquake within Jerusalem. But this time you have a different outcome. I made the case that Israel, in fact, did repent, as evidenced in what's highlighted red. Revelation eleven thirteen it says, And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So I had given you evidence that giving glory to God in heaven is synonymous with repentance, both in Revelation and also in the wider canon in the New Testament and in the Old Testament as well. But this question raises, what accounts for the difference? Why do some people see such horrific wrath within the 70th week of Daniel and they don't repent? And yet you have some people, the Jews within Israel, they see the wrath of God and they end up repenting. Does anyone want to take a stab at it? What counts for the difference? Why do some repent 
and some not. Yeah, Brian. Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, what do you mean by that? We get more of you. I mean that if these people aren't moved or drawn by the Holy Spirit, they will continue to uh, uh, in their sinful ways. Exactly right. Well said. So the difference is, of course, regeneration. That unless the Holy Spirit moves upon people, they can see all sorts of things, but they won't come to Christ. And this is exactly Jesus' point in John chapter 3 when he says, unless a man be born from above, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. Now, what does it mean to be born from above or born again? Many people think that it is the precise act of coming to faith in Jesus Christ, but I think that what Jesus is referring to there is the act by which God enables us to come to Jesus Christ, that is, in faith. It's an allusion back to Ezekiel 36, where God promised that he would pour out his spirit and enable his people to believe. Okay, so that I think is what accounts for the difference. And that's why I cited to you Zechariah 12.10, which I think is somewhat of the backdrop to Revelation 11.13. Okay, in fact, turn that to that one more time. Zechariah 12.10. I just want to show you one more time the necessity of the Holy Spirit. Zechariah 12.10. As you're turning there, think about for the whole church age, the majority of Israel has been in unrepentant, unrepentance and an unbelieving state. And so here in Zechariah 12.10, though, God is saying that he was going to do something in them through the Spirit. Zechariah 12.10, he says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. So stop there. The spirit of grace and supplication, some think that that was the spirit within a man. But a good case can be made that this is the Holy Spirit. And notice again, the result was so that they will look on me whom they'd pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And that mourning is a godly mourning It is a repentance. Okay, so what was required for repentance, again, was the sending of the Holy Spirit. So that's what you and I have to see, that the reason why some believe and some don't isn't because some were smarter than others or some had more evidence than others. It's because of the work of the Spirit. And therefore, salvation from first to last is of God. And so I think that that's another takeaway that we should glean from last week's message. Okay, now this week, let's dive in we're going to see the pronouncement of Christ's kingdom as if it's already in process. That is, Jesus Christ is already reigning. Revelation eleven fifteen, it says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Now, everyone, the seventh angel, when he sounds it implies that that's opening the seventh trumpet. The angels were numbered according to the trumpet that they're opening. So obviously we have the seventh trumpet being opened, which is going to lead, like I said, to the seven bowls, and that's the finished work of God's wrath in the 70th week of Daniel. Okay. Now, notice it says here that there were loud voices in heaven. This is the angelic realm declaring these things. Notice what they're declaring. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. I tell you what, I can't wait until that day. Isn't that wonderful? When you look at all of the bad news in our world, 
That is very good news. Now, on the next slide, I'm going to pull on something that Bob had talked about last week. Remember, Bob talked about cosmos, the term world, and there's three different usages. We're going to play with that in the next slide, but there's three things I want you to consider, first of all, before we turn to that. First of all, I want you to think about this. What this means that the world has become the kingdom of Christ is that the world in its rebellion is now subdued by the Holy One of Israel. All of the rebellion of this world has been subdued by Christ. That's implied in the fact that he's reigning. The second thing that it implies is it's not just that Christ is reigning in the hearts of believers. Why is that important? Because we have many brothers and sisters within the amillennial camp, and they will look at this passage and they'll say, oh yes, this passage is about Jesus Christ reigning in the hearts of his believers and reigning in heaven. No, it's more than that. This passage and all of Revelation is teaching that the people of God with Christ will have dominion over the whole earth. And that is one of the most important concepts in the book of Revelation is that the kingdom of heaven is coming to earth. That the invisible king in the invisible kingdom is going to become visible once more. And so that's my third point. The invisible here becomes visible. All right, those are the three points that I want you to see right away. But now we've got a little time for grammar. Oh, I can see you're all excited for it. <laughs> oh, yes, Brian, yeah. I just wanted to mention the Lord's Prayer on earth as it is in heaven. Yes, yes, exactly right. I was going to mention that in the next slide. Matthew 6, Brian, great point. The disciples say, Jesus, our Lord, teach us to pray. And he says, don't pray like this. Don't pray in vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they'll be heard for, for their many words. But instead, pray like this. And everyone knows, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Exactly right. Exactly right. So that's exactly what we're going to be witnessing here. Now, one thing that we have to wrestle with is the grammar. Notice here, it says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. And what's interesting, and the reason we have to wrestle with this, is in the, chrono the chronological development of Re Revelation. The reign of Christ doesn't happen until Revelation 19, right? That's when he comes. So why in the world are we hearing about the reign now? Well, let's wrestle with that. How do we reconcile saying that it has become, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of Christ? Well, this is an aorist indicative middle. It's a, it's a verb of ginemai. And what it's being used as is what's called a proleptic aorist. Now, what in the world is a proleptic aorist? A proleptic aorist, Bob's read this many times and explained this to us, but we all need to be refreshed. A proleptic aorist is an aorist that normally talks about things in the past, but it's referring to something that is so assured, it speaks as if it's already occurred. Okay? Uh, let me give you an example from Scripture. Turn your Bibles to Romans 8.30, and I think this example will make it very clear what a proleptic aorist is. And as you're turning to Romans 8.30, realize that a proleptic aorist is often also called a prophetic aorist because it's used in prophecy by the prophets, speaking of things that haven't happened as if they are, as if they're occurring 
at the time of the writing of the prophet. Why? Because they're so assured. Now, again, as you're turning to Romans 8.30, why would John want to do that here? Because when you open the seventh trumpet, you're opening the seven bowls. And once the seven bowls are done, all the wrath of God is done, and the rain comes. And so it's being foreseen here. It's being proleptically given to us. Okay, notice here Romans 8.30. This is often called the golden chain, right, of salvation. Talking about God's work, it says, And these, that would be the elect, whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Another aorist, and we would call that that glorified, doxazo. It's another aorist verb here, and it would be a proleptic aorist. Why? Because have you and I all been glorified? No. But in the terms of the writing here of Paul, he's saying that it's so assured that you will be glorified. If you've been justified, you're going to be glorified, that he speaks as if it's already occurred. That's the absolute certainty that we can have for our glorification and also the reigning of Christ. Yeah. Another famous example is Isaiah 53. Yes. Isaiah 53 is often called prophetic perfect. But it says, he was pierced for our transgressions. Yes. Now, this was spoken by Isaiah before Christ came on the scene of history, but it's declared to be a fact. He was pierced, although it doesn't happen until later. That's right. And you like football, Eric. Can you give an example from football announcers of prolepsis? Or do you want me to do it? Go ahead. I'm not sure where you're going on All now. right. Put him on the spot. Yeah. Well, we've all seen this happen. Let's say one team is up by two touchdowns with a little over two minutes to go. Yeah. And um, the other team throws an interception, and now the team's up by three touchdowns. Sure. And the announcer says, the game is over. Oh, Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Well, actually, there's still two minutes to go. But <laughs> it's so certain right. now that the one team's going to win. Right. They say the game is over, so you have prolepsis right. or a proleptic statement. And if you're a Viking fan... The game's would, over right yeah, away. Exactly. <laughs> we even extend it to the whole season. Yeah, we, we just we, say this. We understand how that works. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Bob. It's a great example. I love that. Yeah, the Vikings, you can just say as they get into training camp, the season's over. It's just, uh, and I say that as a, a hearty Viking fan. I bleed purple, but it's been painful. So, yeah, it's very good examples, and that's exactly what prolepsis is. It's saying something is so assured that it speaks as if it's already occurred. All right, now, one other thing I want to wrestle with in this text is notice it says, the Lord and of his Christ. And right away, that should put in our minds Psalm 2.2. Because Psalm 2.2 refers to Yahweh and his anointed. Remember, Christ is Messiah, the anointed one. Okay, and let me just put up Psalm 2. We're going to read the whole thing in context, but I'm just going to put up 2.2 right here. Psalm 2.2. It says, the kings of the earth, so where are the kings on the earth? They take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh, that's Lord all caps, and against his anointed. Now, when this was written, it was written by whom? It was written by King David, wasn't it? 
and he was the Lord's anointed. He was the one who reigned in Jerusalem. But King David himself, in 2 Samuel 7, and especially verses 14 and on, said that he knew that God's promise that one day a descendant of his would sit on the throne of David, that is his throne forever, was in the distant future. So even David looked forward to a successor who would come who would fulfill this. And so ultimately, the Lord and his anointed isn't just David, it's David's greater son, the Messiah, that the Messiah would one day reign. That's what it's referring to. So here, the backdrop in Revelation eleven fifteen all the way to the end of the chapter is Psalm 2, that the nations are raging against Yahweh and his anointed, his Messiah. But who wins? Well, Yahweh and his Messiah do. That's what we're seeing right here. Another text I want you to consider is turn your Bibles to Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. Again, Daniel 7, 13 through 14. And I want you to see this text because it's the backdrop of the name that Jesus most often gives to himself, the Son of Man. The expectation that God had given in the prophets was that you had to have the God-man come and reign. Remember Isaiah 9, unto us a son, is, a son is given, unto us a child is born, and what is his name? His name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. So the expectation was that the God-man would come and reign. And so we see this in Daniel 7, 13 through 14. It says, I kept looking, this is Daniel saying this, in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. So stop there. At that point in the prophecy, remember there had been four kingdoms that had arisen. But the final kingdom that would come would be from the Son of Man. So over and over in the Gospels, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. It is his favorite self-designation. Not because he's trying to make himself merely human, but because Son of is often used in the Old Testament and the New as being characterized by. And what is so shocking is that God is characterized also as a man, the God-man in one person. And so the expectation is because Adam was the man who was to rule and to be God's vice-regent over the whole earth and he failed, you had to have the God-man come and do what Adam never could. In fact, that's what we're going to be looking at next week in Romans 5, 12 through 19, that the new Adam, Jesus, does what the old Adam can't. Okay, so that's why Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man. He is the fulfillment of Daniel 7. Now, notice what it goes on to say. It says, And he came up to the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, and so I think this is very Trinitarian, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is for how long? It's an everlasting dominion, olam, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so that's another backdrop to this passage that we're studying. Now, one thing I want to do is I want to play on a word that Bob had defined for you in the sermon last week. Remember cosmos, the term for world? When it says that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of Christ, what I want to wrestle with is in what sense is world being used by John? 
Now, remember, Bob gave us all of the examples from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament of how world was used. It's used in three different ways. First of all, world can be referring in the scriptures just to the universe, everything that was created, okay? And specifically, oftentimes, the earth specifically. But sometimes it's used in the sense of the realm of human affairs. It's used in politics, the, the reigning over the world and the interactions and affairs of men. And the third usage is humanity and its rebellion against God. In that sense, the third usage of world, it'd be used much like flesh. And so here's what I want you to think about. When it says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of Christ, in what, what world is John using here? And here's, I'll just put my cards on the table. I think he's referring to all three. Now, let's take these one by one. Let's start with world three. World three, humanity and rebellion against God. When Jesus Christ comes back, rebellion will not be tolerated. You and I as believers will be in glorified bodies, and therefore you and I will no longer sin against our God. But he will also not tolerate sin from the rest of the world, even though there will be unbelievers. For example, I'll show you in the next slide, in Zechariah 14, all the nations are going to be required to come up to Jerusalem, and if they won't do it, he won't send rain upon their land. He will not tolerate insubordination. And so finally, we're going to have a king who reigns in righteousness. Man's rebellion will be put down. Think about world two, the realm of human affairs. Think of politics. No longer do we have to worry about democracies. What's the problem with democracies? And by the way, they're better than any other form of government. The problem is evil people end up voting in other evil people. But we have the righteous king coming, right? And in Isaiah 2, it says that he's going to beat the swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Won't that be wonderful? No more war. Think about all the money that we'll save. And by the way, I love jets. I always wanted to be a fighter pilot, and so I'm always for defense spending. More F-15s. I love jet noise. I'm one of those corny people that should live by the airport. But you know what? I know it's a lot of money. And in this day, we're not going to need them. Why? Because Jesus Christ is going to be reigning. He's going to be king over the whole world. But think about world number one, the universe, and specifically the location of the earth. That also is going to be the locale of Christ's reign. The primary theme of the book of Revelation is that the reign of Christ goes from heaven to earth. That's where it goes. Now, I want you to see that this was the expectation in the Old Testament prophets, and it is the expectation within Revelation itself. Let me show you some evidence. Daniel 2. Remember here was the vision that Daniel was revealing that Nebuchadnezzar had. Again, four kingdoms came about, and at the end, you'd have a glorious messianic kingdom. It says of this messianic kingdom, Daniel 2.35, it's likened to the stone. It says, but the stone that struck the statue. So stop there. What's the stone in the statue? The statue are all the pagan kingdoms that came about in history. The stone is the Messiah's kingdom. Okay, so that's, if you read the whole thing, you'd see that in context. So the Messianic kingdom, the stone, struck the statue and it became a great mountain and filled what? The whole heavens? It filled the whole earth. Why is that significant? Because God's invisible reign in the heavens is coming to earth, just as Brian was referring to in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is going to fill the whole earth. 
Uh, let me show you another passage, Zechariah 14.9. It says, And Yahweh will be the king over all the earth. In that day, Yahweh will be the only one, in his name, the only one. Now, some amillennialists will take Zechariah 14.9, and they will say, well, God is in Christ reigning now. He's in the heavens. And we would agree with that. Yes, Christ is reigning on his throne, Psalm 110. But notice, saying that Christ is reigning now in heaven, currently during this age, that cannot fulfill Zechariah 14.9. Notice very closely. It says, Yahweh will be king over all the earth. Well, he is now, the amillennialist will say, reigning in heaven. That's fine. But it says, in that day, Yahweh will be the only one, and his name the only one. Is it true now that Yahweh's name is the only one on the earth, that there are no other gods being magnified? Wait, I've seen quite a few other gods. And there's a lot of rascals who claim to be followers of Allah and followers of Muhammad. They certainly have a different God than Yahweh. So what I'm showing you then is Zechariah 14.9 cannot be referring to any rain that is occurring here and now. It's looking forward to a future rain. All right, now let me show you another expectation. The expectation in Revelation 5.10. This is, again, what the book of Revelation in a sense is about. Here in the throne room, it's the angelic realm. The elders cried out, you have made them, that's believers, to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign where? On a cloud strumming a harp? No, they will reign upon the earth because the messianic kingdom is coming to fill the whole earth. Brothers and sisters, what wonderful news. That which is invisible is going to become visible. That which is in heaven is going to come also to the earth. What wonderful news. Now, let's deal with amillennialism because... Here's why I want to deal with amillennialism right here and now. We will talk to brothers and sisters who, when we talk about these things, they yawn. They're amillennialists, and they say, well, all this talk about Christ reigning over the earth, this is pie-in-the-sky thinking. No, Christ is reigning now in the hearts of men through the church, and he's reigning from heaven. And then all he's going to do is he's going to set up the eternal states, which is wonderful. We're going to have the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. But all this talk about Christ reigning a political kingdom for a thousand years is misguided. Okay? So how do we wrestle with that? Do you and I just say, well, we'll be postmodern, and we'll say we have our interpretation, and they have their interpretation, and who can really know? I don't think so. I'm not a postmodern. I wasn't when I was an airline pilot. I didn't say, you know what? The manual for the aircraft that the engineers put together said, I have to fly this approach at 130 knots, but let's take a straw pole in the back. How many want to fly it faster? How many want to fly it slower? I don't care. I'm going with the engineers who made the airplane. Okay, in the same way, we can know the Word of God, and we can know a true interpretation. So what I want to do is I want to lead you through what the amillennialist would have you believe through Revelation 11, I'm going to show you their interpretation. And what I'm going to show is I'm going to contrast that to our interpretation, and I'm going to show you some glaring deficiencies of the amillennialist interpretation. I'm going to use a man named Simon Kistemaker. He's a scholar who has written a commentary in the Baker Commentary on the New Testament in the book of Revelation. And so I'm going to lead you through Revelation 11, the major points, and show you what he says. Let's begin. Remember in Revelation 11, it began with John measuring the temple. 
And you and I define the temple as a future rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. The temple that one day the Antichrist will set himself on in 2 Thessalonians 2, according to the Apostle Paul. Okay? But how do they understand the temple? Well, let me read you Amillennialist Simon Kistemacher. And again, this man has wonderful insights in a lot of areas. It's just not here. Simon Kistemacher, he says this. He says, quote, Accordingly, John takes this prophecy, that is, of the temple, of Jesus and the temple, and applies it to the earthly Jerusalem. I'm sorry. He applies it not to the earthly Jerusalem, but to the church, which is the image of the new Jerusalem. So notice what Kistemacher does in Revelation 11 is he takes the temple and he says it's the church. Now, oftentimes in the New Testament, the church is referred to as the temple of God. We wouldn't deny that, but not in the context of Revelation 11. Why? Because John was asked to measure not only the temple, but the altar and the worshipers that were in the temple. So if the temple is the church, who in the world are the worshipers? Well, that's something inside the church. Is that our food and our stomach? I, you know, I mean, what is it? It's something within the church. So all of a sudden it breaks down because you don't have enough church to fill all the images within Revelation 11. If the temple is the church, what are the, the worshipers in the temple? doesn't make any sense. Okay. Now, what about the two witnesses? We looked at that last week. Listen to what Kistemacher says. We define the two witnesses as being prophets like Moses and Elijah. Elijah had to come and restore all things. And we showed the backdrop in the Old Testament for that. Listen to what Kistemacher says. He says, however, I suggest a symbolic interpretation, namely that the two witnesses represent the church of Christ, that by proclaiming the gospel calls the world to repentance. So again, the two witnesses are the church. So now in the same prophecy, you have the temple, according to the amillennialist, is the church, and the two witnesses are the church. And so, so far, everything is the church. Are you with me? Well, now we don't have any distinction between many of the elements within the prophecy. To me, that's very problematic, and especially in light of all the data that we saw that showed that these two witnesses have ministries like Moses and Elijah. Elijah shut up rain for three and a half years. One of the prophets here of these two witnesses can shut up rain for three and a half years. Moses, we know he sent plagues upon the earth. One of these witnesses sends plagues upon the earth. And so, again, a much better interpretation is not that the two witnesses are the church, but they're like Moses and Elijah. Now, yeah, Bob. Well, I had a public debate with an amillennialist one time. Yeah. And um, one thing that they do is try to say that when it comes to prophecy, details don't matter. Right. Everything's real simple. Just this is it. Uh Now and in the eternal affairs, none of this stuff matters. Right. But one of the things that I've debated is that, well, why don't we look at prophecies concerning the first advent and ask ourselves if details matter? Exactly. Okay. So when things happened that were referred to in the Old Testament, they very specifically happened. Exactly right. Jesus was literally pierced through. Amen. Okay. And... You go 
dozens and dozens of prophecies that literally happened that is proof that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, you can't use special pleading to create a hermeneutic. Now, let me tell you what that means. Special pleading is a logical fallacy. So that, okay, here's the way it always is, but now that I'm debating you, I'm going to say it's this way just because I say so. Right. It's yeah. special pleading. Right, okay. right. Well, we're just saying none of the details matter. Right. So all this stuff in Revelation is just there to tickle our brain. It doesn't really mean anything. Right. Well, well it sorry. means something, but the church. Yeah, that's, that's right. All, that's all it's about, yeah. the church in the age we're already in. Yeah. But yeah. if you use the same hermeneutic, and applied to the first advent, we'd lose our evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. Exactly. So how can you do that? How can you say the Holy Spirit inspired all these things, but we're not supposed to think that they mean what they say? Exactly. And so now we magically change hermeneutics in midstream just because we like to. Yes. Well, the guy I was debating said, well, I'm an amillennialist because some goofy dispensationalist, when I was a kid, say, d- said dumb things. Like, you know, whatever. The yeah. United Nations is the Antichrist, Antichrist yeah. or whatever. You know, the, the guy in charge of the United Nations is the Antichrist sure. or whatever they said. And so that's not logical either. Right. Because somebody abuses a doctrine. Tell me one doctrine in the whole Bible that hasn't been abused. Yes. Right. Well, there aren't any. Yeah. So you can't throw out Bible prophecy because some people abused it. Amen. You know, Bob, too, I was thinking as you're saying that, amillennialism is really an attack on authorial intent. Right. Let me give another example from the scriptures. We've used this before, but think about Zach, or excuse me, Ezekiel 40, the last eight <coughs> chapters. It's a description of a future temple, and it gives you a long list of different dimensions of this future temple. Well, because the amillennialists can't have a future temple that Christ is going to reign from, they have to spiritualize it. But if you start spiritualizing the height of a doorway, can't you make it to mean anything? If you take the height of a doorway and say, well, it's supposed to be 12 cubits, and you say, ah, the 12 cubits represent the 12 apostles. Well, then you can start doing that with everything. And you know who's in control of hermeneutics or the interpretation of Scripture? It's the reader rather than the author. And what we're saying is when the author distinguished between the temple, between the altar, and the worshipers, he did it for a reason. And Bob said, in the past, God distinguished between different elements and was precise in details. Well, we should expect the the same for the future prophecies as well. Again, what's at stake is who interprets Scripture. It's either the author, God, ultimately, or it's the reader. And if the reader defines the meaning of the text, then we might as well join the postmodern emergent church and say, well, who can know? Okay? So let me, now let's, right today, we're talking about the kingdom of the world becoming the kingdom of Christ. Here's what Simon Kistemacher would say. He says that has to do with Christ's reign in heaven during the church age. Now, remember, all millennialists, when we get to Revelation 20, they say that when it says Satan was bound for a thousand years, they claim that that's now, that Satan is bound now and doesn't deceive the nations anymore. Now, let's look at a few passages to see if that's even plausible. Is it even plausible that Satan is bound now? and no longer deceives the nations. Well, let's turn our Bibles to 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. 
and let's see if there's evidence that Satan indeed is bound and can no longer deceive the nations. Again, the amillennialist says that's happening now. What we're saying, no, that happens in this future earthly kingdom. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Paul says of those who rejected the gospel, again, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he says, in their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, the God of this age is not Yahweh, it's, in this case, Satan. And the term that's used for age is eon, talking about the current church age. Well, if, in fact, Satan is bound and can no longer deceive the nations, why is Paul depicting him here in 2 Corinthians 4.4 as blinding the unregenerate so that they can't perceive the gospel? It doesn't make any sense. Do you see the incongruity? Okay, so let me give you another one. Oh, yes, Eric. I might be jumping the gun a little bit. That's all right. We like that. But I'll tell you why this is important, and I think most of the people here know this, but, you know, we go out with the evangelism group a little bit, and I've got, you know, I talk to relatives and friends and stuff, and I I know actually quite a few people who were raised, you know, and they kind of, some of the main denominations don't even teach much of this, but to the extent that they do, uh, a lot of them are amillennial, I believe. And, and I, I have relatives who I've talked to about Jesus Christ, and they've said, uh, they've said, you know, in other words, they believe that, that the, the reign of Jesus Christ is here already, right. all of that, and, and accordingly they have rejected all Christian doctrine because they look around and they say, you know, there's evil in the world. Uh-huh. There's all of this. How can God tolerate this? This is supposedly the, the kingdom of Jesus Christ oh, right here and right here. now. Wow. In other words, we're talking to people where their perspective is is that this is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Uh-huh. This is the millennial kingdom. And they don't like what they see, so they say the Bible is all wrong. Wow. Okay? Eric, I never even considered that. Very good. Devastating. Yes. Uh, you know, I've always just assumed in my own mind that people, but you're, you're, you're being intellectually you know, honest. I'm just thinking, well, they can't be intellectually honest. They must say, well, it's going to get better. But, but they, that's a great point. It creates a huge theological crisis in their minds. Well, what we're talking about here are not the theologians. The theologians have done a terrible disservice yeah. to the, the just the... Wow. What one, I, I've got a cousin who actually he was thinking of becoming a Lutheran pastor long ago when he okay. was a young kid. And their family went through all kinds of terrible, tragic things. Yeah. And he said to me, I remember one night we talked for an hour and a half, and he brought up the subject. In other words, he's very, and we're still praying for him, you know, yeah. but he's an unbeliever. Huh. But he at one time raised as a Lutheran and thought, I might become a pastor. His father died tragically, lots of terrible, awful things, you know, tragic yeah. things in the family. And he said to me, Eric, you know, a, a loving God, you know, could not allow this. Because we're in the millennial kingdom. This is the reign of Jesus Christ. Wow. In other words, we're talking about sincere people who wow. believe what they were taught as kids, and they're lost. Yeah. Wow. Because of this. Eric, thank you. That really shows the significance of what's at stake here. Very well said. Yeah, Brian. What was the, uh, the Michael Heiser, the uh, supernatural realm? Yeah, that, the I think you realm. Would, Yeah. Uh, he points out that cr- even... Christians fail 
to have that supernatural worldview. And if you don't have that supernatural worldview, then you're always going to end up with things like he was talking about or anything else. Why did this happen? Why did that happen? Why is all this stuff happening in the Middle East, Turkey, blah, blah, blah? Well, it it, it is because this world is ruled by Satan at this point in time in God's history. Yes, well said. Yeah, Bob. Yes, very good points. And there's another one. If you were going to go there, I can apologize. But in Revelation 20... It says, after that, after a thousand years, verse 3, he must be released for a short period of time. So I'm debating this amillennialist who's a pastor, and he says the binding of Satan happened at the cross. Yeah, when's he released? (laughs) And so he's been bound during the whole church age. And, And I said, okay, so I went to this verse. It said... But after the thousand years, which, okay, let's say that's not really a thousand years. It's just a church age. He's released. So your claim that the binding was the work of the cross, the releasing must be undoing the cross. Yeah, when is that going to be undone? So why would you claim that God is going to undo the work of the cross? Exactly. It's devastating. Well, he had no answer. Yeah. Go to the next topic. Um and some think, well, prophecy isn't important. Eschatology, the study of the end times, isn't important. We can just let it go. Don't yeah. worry about it. But it has to do with a lot of things, including yeah. the significance of the work of the gospel yeah. in the world we live in. That's right. And that Satan is called the God of this world. And people are in bondage to him. And that conversion, according to Acts twenty six eighteen, is going from the authority of Satan to God. Yeah. And so the way out of Satan's authority and power is through conversion. Amen. And and people need to come to Christ. Amen. That's a, as I've been saying. That's my evangelistic tool. I get I emails every week. I just got two this morning. I haven't answered them yet. And they're always saying, I've got problem with Satan and demons, will you deliver me? Yeah. And that's when I preach the gospel to them. You have to come to Christ so that you're removed from the authority of Satan, sometimes called darkness, and put into the kingdom of God. Bob, I like what you said in your sermon last week. We've got to think bigger. Yeah, you're thinking too little. (laughs) Yeah, with the demon exorcism. From one domain to the other, yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, very well said. It's devastating if the Satan being bound is the work of the cross, then him being released is the undoing of the cross. It's devastating. How do they answer that? They can't. Um, let me give you another one. Romans sixteen twenty. Turn to that. It'll show you that Paul and the apostles expected the imminent return of Christ and that he would subdue and finally put under the feet of believers the work of Satan. Notice Romans sixteen twenty. Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, or excuse me, Lord Jesus be with you. Now notice, will crush, future tense verb, meaning to Paul, it hadn't necessarily occurred fully yet. Okay, well, the amillennialist has to believe that Satan is bound for a thousand years. It has happened. But Paul says, no, 
he will crush. Uh, turn your Bibles to one more passage. This is a little bit obscure, uh, but it's important. 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. Let me show you something very important. We don't want to overlook this one. 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. This is a church disciplinary issue that Paul was dealing with. Again, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. You had an immoral man that the Corinthian church was tolerating. And Paul said, no, he has to be cast out of the assembly. All right, now listen to what he says. 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, he says, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, what's very interesting is Paul is saying that if you're in the church, you're not in the sphere of Satan. But once you're outside the church, you're handed over to the sphere of Satan. So the point is, the world is the sphere of Satan. And so the reason why you and I are in the church is we are in the sphere of God's rule and reign. Okay, not because there's a building that can protect you geographically, but because the church is the place where believers in Jesus Christ are deposited. And we have a means of grace, the four items, fellowship, the Lord's Supper, prayer, the, um, the teaching of the scriptures. Those four items are that which God uses to help us persevere. But once you're kicked out of it, Paul is saying you're being handed over to Satan. Why? Because Satan is the God of this age. That's the point. Well, if he is the God of this age, he certainly isn't bound. That would be the grand point. All right? So that is another passage I think is very devastating, difficult for the amillennialist to answer. Now, let me keep moving for the sake of time. I want to show you another big problem for amillennialism. Let's compare the two. What are we really dealing with? Well, when it comes to the different epochs of time, amillennialists believe in this age. We'll just call it the church age. And we as premillennialists believe in this age, the church age. That is the age roughly from the ascension of Christ and the sending of the Spirit to the time that he returns. That's this age. But where we differ is what happens next. The amillennialist says you go right to the eternal states. Jesus Christ returns. He sets up a new heavens, new earth, and a new Jerusalem. And then you have the final judgment. Unbelievers go to hell. All right? But we say, no, there's a thousand-year earthly reign of Christ. And then that's followed by the eternal states. Now, let me show you a passage that's very difficult for an amillennialist to answer. In fact, I don't think they can. Zechariah 14, 16 through 17. Now, the context here in Zechariah 14 is all the nations have surrounded Jerusalem, and God intervenes on their behalf. He fights for Israel. He wipes out the enemies, the majority of them. But then it says this, verses 16 through 17, Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations, so these are unbelievers, that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Verse 17, it says, And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Now, here's my contention. If we're going to take this passage for what it says, the amillennialist has no epoch of time in which they can place these events. Why? Well, let's start with the eternal states. We'll go backwards. We'll start with two on the amillennialist list. Is everyone with me? Eternal states? So the amillennialists believe that after this age comes the eternal states. But what happens to all unbelievers in the eternal states? Where are they? They're thrown in the lake of fire. 
Okay, well, notice what it says. Of, now, these are unbelievers. Why? Because they won't go up and worship the Lord in Zechariah 14. They're being compelled to. Now, do you and I have to be compelled as believers to go worship the Lord? No, we're going to do it willing, willingly and lovingly. So these are certainly unbelievers, all right? But it can't be in the eternal states. Why? Zechariah 14, you have unbelievers who won't go worship the Lord. But in the eternal states, all unbelievers are where? They're in hell. So that leaves only one age for the amillennialists to put this passage. That's this current age. Let me ask you, when in church history has it ever occurred that the nations were compelled and went up to worship Yahweh at the Feast of Booths, and if they didn't go, rain wouldn't come upon their land? Well, it hasn't happened yet, has it? Do you see that there's no age in which they can put this passage? And that's why the thousand-year earthly reign the millennial kingdom, just as it says in Revelation 20, they will reign with Christ for a thousand years, I think is the only answer. And that's exactly what we're learning here in Revelation 11, that the kingdom that comes from, or I should say the kingdom that's in heaven is going to come to earth. That's the answer, brothers and sisters. How else can you explain the data in this passage? Does that make sense? Does everyone have some, I had saw some people with some quizzical looks on their face. Is that, is that copesthetic, as my grandpa used to say? Okay. All right, now we'll move on here. God's power overcomes the usurpers. Verses 16 through 17, it says, And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and, and have begun to reign. Now, dear ones, notice here, it says that, oops, God has taken his great power and he's begun to reign. Now, the idea of God's taking his power or literally have taken your great power, that's a perfect tense verb. And the implication of that is it's a once and for all thing that's occurred. And so what's being depicted here is there's a contrast, a contrast between the new affairs that Christ's reign brings about versus the old age where sinful power dominated. So when it says that he has taken his great power, that's once and for all. And it, it's a demarcation line forevermore. You see, in the old age that we're living in, human power dominated. There's a rebellion here. There's evil there. Abortion reigns. That's this old age. But this line with the perfect tense verb shows there's a demarcation line. When Christ comes to reign, only his power will reign forevermore. The moment Jesus Christ raptures you, that is the last moment the enemy can ever do anything to you physically, ever. Why? Because Christ's power reigns. Isn't that beautiful? When Christ comes back to reign, enemies won't be tolerated. And by the way, that's why at the end of the thousand years they rebel again. They'll be seethingly mad. You know how Christ defeats the enemies that come against him after the millennial kingdom? It's very difficult. He calls down fire and wipes them out. It's going to be a very lopsided battle. Much like the Battle of New Orleans, remember the British lost thousands? We lost, what, 13? Well, Jesus isn't going to lose any. And that's why he talks throughout the prophets of Jerusalem being an unwalled city. Why? They don't need walls. They don't need fortifications because Messiah, the, the warrior of all warriors, is in their midst. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to see if I'm understanding you correctly. Um, so when Christ comes to reign, 
there will only be believers in the millennial kingdom. Nope, there will be unbelievers as well. There will be yep. going into the millennial kingdom. Yep, through the millennial kingdom. And that's, that's, we know that for two reasons. One was in the passage we just looked at. Notice they're being compelled here to go up to worship the king. Right. And it's the Feast of Booths. But they're obviously not believers because there's a threat upon them. If they don't, rain's not going to come upon their land. Another way we know that there has to be unbelievers in the millennial kingdom is because there's a rebellion at the end. Satan is released, as Bob was alluding to, and it says Gog and Magog come from the corners of the earth, and they come against Jerusalem again, and Jesus just calls down fire, wipes them out. And then you have the eternal states, the white throne judgment, where every single unbeliever will be cast into the lake of fire. So think of it this way. During the millennial kingdom, you'll have many unbelievers still in Hades, and you'll have some unbelievers on the planet. The difference is Messiah in his power is reigning, and he won't tolerate their sin. And so forevermore, it will demonstrate that what created humankind's sin was not the lack of environment or uh, some sort of societal institution. Why? Because God himself will be reigning. Just like it was in the garden, there will be perfection. It'll show forevermore that the problem is within the human heart. Even with Christ reigning, these rebels will go against him. But you and I are going to be in security. Why? Because Christ won't tolerate evil and wickedness. He subdues it. And that's going to be the great difference. And that's why it says the swords will be beat into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks. Okay, I guess what I was confused about is during the last half of the tribulation, yeah. when God pours out his wrath... How do the believers and unbelievers get separated there? Well, the first separation occurs at the rapture, at the beginning of the 70th week. So you have only believers who go to be with the Lord. Then during the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years, you have some people who will come to faith in Jesus Christ. And they would go through the same thing you and I go through. If they die, their body goes to the grave and their soul goes to heaven. But at the end of the 70th week, they'll be raptured as well. Or resurrected as well according to revelation 20 now unbelievers they're going to die obviously within the wrath that's poured out and they'll also have separation of body and soul but their body goes into the grave and their soul will go to hades and so what happens then is when you get to revelation 20 into 21 what you see is the white throne judgment and at the white throne judgment only the unbelievers are raised and then they're going to be thrown into the lake of fire so that's why John says, blessed is he who is part of the first resurrection, for the second death has no power over them. So does that make sense? How, does that answer the question chronologically? Now all this that you just said is going to happen before the millennial reign? Okay, so the, the seven years happens right before the millennial kingdom because the parousia, the, the coming of Christ, okay, is a multifaceted event, all right? And we can prove that because... We, we've proven that. Uh, Luke says the days of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah. Matthew says the parousia of the Son of Man is like the days of Noah. They're synonymous. Parousia equals days plural. So think of Christ coming is in a two-stage. He comes for the church, and he returns with the church at the end. That's how I would conceive of it. That's the only way that you and I can be delivered from the wrath to come. Okay, so basically yeah. you're separating the church from the other people that live and go into the millennium. 
That's yes, word. exactly. So everyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ will be in a resurrected body at that time, and so you never have to fret. Okay, that's yeah. where the yep. con confusion exactly. is. Exactly. Okay, yeah. thank you. In, in general, to understand the Bible, especially prophecy, things are described in terms that are a complex event. Yeah. Now, let me show you why we need to understand that. In other words, we may say Christ returns. And so some will say, well, that can only be just one thing happens. Yeah. There can't be any more. But that's not how the Bible speaks. Think of this one. Christ died for sins, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. Yeah. When we say that's true, well, yeah, it's a Bible verse. But Christ died for sins implies a complex event. Christ was scourged. Christ carried his cross. Yes. Christ hung on the cross. He was blasphemed. He was insulted. He was tortured. And then he died. Wow. His body was uh, put in a tomb. The stone Sorry. was rolled away. Christ came from the tomb. Christ appeared to many witnesses. Christ taught his disciples after his resurrection, and Christ ascended into heaven. So when it says Christ died for sins, it doesn't mean none of that other stuff could have happened. All it means is this one little thing, Christ died. Right. See, it's a complex event. When it says in the Old Testament the Messiah would come, yeah. it doesn't mean all that only happens is one little bit of event. Everything that happened in the first advent is included exactly. in Messiah coming. And so when we say Christ returns, see those who say, well, you've got to simplify that into only one little thing, they don't understand how the Bible speaks to us. Yeah. And we need to understand it from what it says. It says Elijah is coming. Yeah. Well, that has to just be one thing at one time. Yeah. Well, what did we learn about Elijah coming? Yeah, there's two. John the Baptist, exactly, right? Exactly, and there's twofold, isn't there? Yeah, but yet he's still coming. Exactly. So don't let anybody intimidate you out of believing the details. Right, amen. The Bible doesn't fill itself with details so that we don't believe any of them. Exactly. Well said. All right, so <laughs> they would like to intimidate us like we made all of this up, but we didn't. Yeah. Because we can still say, Christ is returning. Yeah. And that's true. Christ came. That's true. But there, this is what I would call a complex event. Amen. Well said. Let's, let's um, give you another example from Scripture. Everyone turn your Bibles to Luke 17, 26. Luke 17, 26. I'll just leave off with this here. And it proves, I think, Bob's point that the coming of Christ, the technical term is parousia. In fact, so technical was that term for the coming of Christ, the apostles never use it for his incarnation, his coming for the first time, lest you would confuse the two. Okay? Let me just show you a connection. Notice Luke 17, 26, Jesus talking about these days. That is the 70th week of Daniel, the last days. That is before the millennial kingdom. And notice he says, just as it was in the days of Noah so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. So he's not talking about his first advent on earth. He's talking about his second coming. Notice the, the plural, 
the days of the Son of Man. Now, that passage is directly parallel to Matthew 24. I believe it's either 37 or 38. Turn your Bibles there, if you will. It's verse 38. Excuse me, it's verse 37. Matthew 24, 37. Identical in the Greek. The only change is, do you see in Luke 17, 26, it said the days of the Son of Man? Notice here, very important, Matthew 24, 37. It says, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the parousia of the Son of Man. So in Luke 17, 26, you have the days of the Son of Man. Matthew 24, 37, it's the parousia of the Son of Man. The parousia is a complex of days. The parousia, that's what we render in our Bible, the coming of Christ. But it's referred to in the plural in Luke 17, 26 as the plurality of the days of the, of the Son of Man. That's exactly what Bob's talking about. We see in our Bible the coming of Christ, but when you unpack it, it's a plurality of days. There's many events that occur. Does that help? Um, in fact, I see the whole 70th week of Daniel as the parousia. That's how I would understand it. It's his coming for his people to deliver them from wrath. It's the pouring out of wrath and his bodily return to bring about his kingdom. And that's the parousia, or the days, plural, of the Son of Man. Okay, so there you have two references that will show you exactly what Bob was just saying. Well, I tell you what, we got so much more to get into, but I know we're out of time. Um, If you have any questions, feel free to come up after, and we can certainly talk more about these great truths. But let me just close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that there is a day that your Son is coming back, that he will, in fact, reign upon the earth, and that all of your promises that you've given to your people through the beginning of time all the way till now will come to pass. And I pray, Heavenly Father, for my brothers and sisters that you would instill these truths, that you would allow them to know that you specified all of these things in great detail so that they know that they can know that they know that you are, in fact, the King of Kings who will come back and reign. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.